To support our work at the Izzy and Murtada Picture Show and the work of other independent creators like us, sign up to listen to the podcast on Nebula. Nebula is the creator-owned streaming platform that hosts great videos and podcasts like the one you're listening to now. Sign up today at nebula.tv slash picture show and you will get access to this podcast plus other great podcasts and videos. Sign up for Nebula and help support independent media creators. That's nebula.tv slash picture show. Hi, I'm Izzy. And I'm Mortada. And this is the Izzy and Mortada Show. And this week we are talking about a classic movie. Perhaps the classic movie that almost everyone has seen. It's the 80th anniversary of Casablanca. Ooh, yay. Izzy, what do you think of when you think of Casablanca? Well, I think about Ingrid Bergman because I love Ingrid Bergman in this movie. Yeah. Um, this is also my dad's favorite movie, I think. So this is a movie that has been on in my house probably hundreds of times. I've seen it so often that I'm pretty sure I can recite parts of the screenplay verbatim. And I'm not mad about it. I very much enjoyed this movie. I recently revisited it and had a fantastic time doing so. Yeah, I did as well. And I think the, the thing that always sticks with me are all these lines from the movie that everybody just loves. You know, play it again, Sam. Here is it looking at you, kid. We'll always have Paris. And they seem like so simple, like just words, everyday words that everybody says. Yet somehow in this movie, they become iconic. Um, and I think it's the gravitas of the film, of the history, of the story, of the actors delivering these lines, um, all of that. And that's what I think about. And this last time I watched it, I was just struck by how these lines that have this grave presence in my life as a cinephile, and they were just delivered nonchalantly in the middle of scenes. And I'm like, no, 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 but you should stop. This is one of the big lines. We need to like, you know, I don't know, clap, stand up, do something. Um, so that's kind of what I think of when I think of Gas Black. And, you know, the funny thing is some of those lines were allegedly made up by Humphrey Bogart on set. Wow. wow. Not even in the screenplay, <laughs> the Academy Award winning screenplay, at least yeah. originally. But, yeah. you know, I think Casablanca is one of those movies where it's reputation its legacy has become so enormous and looms so large in our sort of filmic imaginations that it's worth taking a step back and thinking about why that is and why it resonates so much what makes it great um and that's why i think we're both really excited to have noah eisenberg on the podcast today uh, to talk about his book, we'll always have Casablanca, the life, the legend, and afterlife of Hollywood's most beloved movie. Noah is a director of screen studies and a professor of culture and media at the New School and at the University of Austin, or the University of Texas, Austin. I'm sorry, Texans, I messed that up. Um, but 
I recently read his book and was just absolutely fascinated by it. It has so many tidbits about the history of how this screenplay was written, about the various characters who make this a fantastic film. Uh, so I definitely recommend picking it up if you're at all interested in this topic or any of these figures. All right, Noah, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, first things first, I wanted to see if you could give us kind of an elevator pitch that you would give to someone who's never seen Casablanca before. What would you tell them about the movie? Wow, elevator pitch. Well, first off, uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And elevator pitch on Casablanca? Uh, wow. That is so difficult, and I'm and 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 I should have it down. You'd think after all these years and the dog and pony show, peddling the book and all that. Uh, and 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 one of the things that I've been speaking about recently, and for the 80th anniversary of of, of Casablanca, this is the 80th anniversary of it's uh, going into general release, um, has been also the focus on these refugees who are involved in the production. That's impossible to work into a an elevator pitch, and, and it, which makes sense given that they are kind of in the shadows, they're in the you know on the margins. Um, but that's been something that I've been you know that's a big big, big, uh, uh, central chapter in the book. And it's a, you know, it remains, I think probably the principal focus when it comes to my, how I read the the film, uh, to this day. I mean, that's just something that I, 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 I find it, it makes the film when I was talking about how you have a relatively simple and easily digestible, uh, sort of narrative arc, um, you know, we, we I, I guess that could be your elevator pitch, right. That, uh, that, uh, uh, sort of uh, neutral, uh, stridently neutral isolationist becomes uh, committed activist. Uh, That doesn't do justice to it, but that's basically the character arc of Rick Blaine. Um, But beyond that is, of course, this this, 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 this sort of the the latent story, the story that's not really, isn't fully articulated on screen, but is is kind of percolating beneath the surface. And that's the story of all these, these refugees who had themselves fled the, the the Nazi regime, and who were either playing refugees on screen, or in some cases playing Nazis on screen, or were on the other side of the camera. And so, actually, that's a, a good place to start with. So, because the film, you know, if somebody cursory, yeah, like the cursory knowledge about this film is that it's a love story because Absolutely. it's Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart. They're in love. It's one of those impossible love stories that you know they have to be together. They're meant to be together, but they're not. Like all the good love stories in movies, and right. that's what most people know this movie as. But I love that you brought up the immigrants. I br- love that you brought up the refugees. I think that's a good place to start. We so tell us um, how, how do you think the fact that most of the people who worked on this film where immigrants were refugees from Europe um, in the early 40s coming to America to escape the Nazis. How has that um, affected the development of the story and made it to what it is today? Well, it, it endowed the film with a, a far greater sense of urgency and gave it, as you know, Pauline Kael said in an, an interview with Algin Harmitz, who wrote this great uh, production history, one of the you know, pioneering works. I, my book would be nothing without Algin Al- Hermitz's uh, first book, uh, Round Up the Usual Suspects, A History of Casablanca. 
uh, in an interview with with Aljean Harmetz, uh, Pauline Kael said that the, 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 the refugees and, and, and their their authentic accents, it really gave the film that 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 patina of authenticity. It would, you know, if you had a bunch of American actors doing their best to give an Austrian or a Hungarian or a German or a French accent, it just obviously would be it wouldn't be the same picture. Beyond that, however, many of these these uh, the you know these the bit players involved, the actors who had maybe a line or two in the film, they'd actually experience what's being portrayed on 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 screen. And so, a film like Casablanca, that yes, forever will be remembered as one of the greatest romances, the greatest love love stories in in motion picture history, um, is really an anti-Nazi film. I mean, it's really and 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 not just an anti-Nazi film. It it is a a propaganda film. It's a propaganda film that's aimed at convincing the otherwise, just like Rick Blaine's character arc, that mm-hmm. that, that 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 reluctant reluctant supporter of the Allied war effort, in, in Rick's case, the, the reluctant supporter of the you know of the anti-fascists of the underground movement that Victor Laszlo, that Paul Henry represents, mm-hmm. uh, and that we know that Rick has his sympathies because we've got these clues. We know that he ran guns to Ethiopia. We know that he fought on the side of the loyalists in Spain. But for the American public at that time, even, you know, this is a, so the, 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 uh, the three act stage play, everybody comes to Rick's arrives in Burbank, California, just days after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, it ends up being translated to the screen by the Epstein twins and Howard Koch and, and several other contract writers at Warner's by the time it hits, you know, and, 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 and it's accelerated. So we're celebrating now the, the, the 80th anniversary of it going into general release, but it was accelerated. It was, you know, the, when, when general Patton's troops arrived in North Africa in, 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 in uh, Morocco, uh, under the, the banner of operation torch, that's when Jack Warner says, we got to get this film into the theaters. And so it debuts on Thanksgiving day, 1942 at the Hollywood theater in midtown Manhattan um, audiences still need to be convinced that this was a just war, that this was a war worth fighting. And so that's something too, that I think the, the, the refugees playing refugees on screen, or in certain cases, also playing Nazis on screen, they knew them firsthand. Um, it gives that, you know, again, as I was saying, kind of endows the film with, with more urgency, as well as the, you know, the late, uh, Pauline Kael said a certain patina of authenticity. It's no mistake that, you know, Warner Brothers produced this film, that it's a film that's so politically engaged. And you described how that studio specifically was really the first, the first to take seriously the Nazi threat and to make an effort to portray that threat on screen. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the Warner Brothers as as people and why they specifically were so keen to take a stance as opposed to other studio executives like Louis B. Mayer or any others, for example. Yeah, so like a lot of of of, of, of the uh, studio bosses in Hollywood, they 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 come from Europe. Uh, Jack Warner was born in Ontario, uh, so in Canada. But apart from them, they were all born in, in, in Poland. They were immigrants, um, and it was really Harry Warner who was sort of the, the the big, the great conscience of the of the of the studio who was. Who was very eager, as uh, you know, when he was brought in in September of of uh, forty one to to testify before Congress, he was accused of beating the drums of war and of being uh, in the in the language of the day a a, a premature anti fascist. Can you believe there was such a thing as a premature anti fascist? Um, but he said, all we want to do is we want to portray to the world the events that are unfolding across the globe. And so he took it very, very seriously and saw and that's where you get this sort of this mix of newsreel, especially in the opening scenes of Casablanca, that sort of blend of newsreel with then, a, you know, a, uh, 
a confection, a story that then is, is you know, a, a great yarn that spun. Um, but but the other thing that I want to say about about Warner Brothers and how they distinguish themselves is, is, is you know, in terms of the the the, the anti Nazi uh, pictures that they had the courage to 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 release, um, they you know I, they obviously had a stake in Europe too. They were still were revenue streams coming from Europe. There's a story that they like to tell that one of their the Warner's uh, foreign foreign uh, studio representatives was was beaten by Nazi thugs. Some people have disputed whether the veracity of that story, but I think they felt they had skin in the game very early. And you can tell by their if you look at the the roster of films um, that have a kind of anti-Nazi bent to them. Uh, uh, you know, confessions of a of a of a of a Nazi spy. That's at, at thirty nine. You have these films that have a sort of allegorical, uh, you know, take on on the rise of fascism. Even these biopics directed by you know William Dieterle, um, Juarez, uh, Zola, um, that that can certainly be read allegorically as a as as, as anti fascist. I think they were ready to get in the game. In fact, to such a degree that I think it's in 38, if I'm not mistaken, around the time that the, uh, that the, uh, uh, Hollywood anti-Nazi league, uh, is, is, is gaining some traction and, and that the European film fund is being established by Paul Kohner, Salka Fiertel, Ernst Lubitsch and others. And many of the people involved in Casablanca were paying into this fund. This was to, to bring over stranded writer, mainly writers, with affidavits and with short-term studio contracts to get them out of out of Nazi-engulfed Europe and get them to, to to Hollywood, Warner Brothers and in fact Warner Brothers offered up their studio space for the meetings of of the European Film Fund. They became a bit uh, less enamored of the Hollywood anti-Nazi league when it became, in their eyes, when it became a little bit too far to the left, even p- p- ostensibly communist in nature. The last thing I'll say about that was around 3839 is that's around when, when, when Groucho Marx said that Warner, Warner Brothers, the, the only studio in town with any guts is what Groucho Marx said about Warner Brothers. And he wasn't, you know, he was always looking for a good laugh line. But um, I think there's some 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 credence to that to that observation. When you look at the other studios that were much more reluctant, much more concerned, perhaps, of the, the revenue stream still from European sales of their films. I, I want to go back to, to, to sort of the immigrant thing again and sort of ask you. So the film obviously was shot. In LA, so all these people must have actually gone through some sort of similar experience to what the people in the story are going through, right? They, in, in some cases, directly. So, so, so. Sorry to interrupt you, Murtada, but if I can give you just one concrete example. Mm-hmm. So, so Marcel Dalio, who many people know, of course, from the the collaborations with Renoir, Rules of the Game, uh, Grand Illusion. He travels with his wife, then the nineteen uh, year year old. Um, Oh God, it's so funny, uh, uh, Madeleine Labou. I'm, I'm remembering her, her the, 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 the name on screen, which is of course Yvonne. Yes, uh, Rick's yeah, on again, off again, Paramour. They 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 left Paris after the Nazis stormed and made their way to Marseille. From Marseille to Lisbon, and then on a on a freighter to to, to Mexico and managed to cross the border with with uh, with with with, with, with uh, visas, forged visas, I believe they were. But the point is, many of these people, and I gave you just the example of Marcel Dalio, but there are others to really kind of travel that same refugee trail that the film itself is talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's not just so when I was saying moments ago that you know there's a it's it's a great yarn, it's a great story. Sort of a Hollywood confection of sorts. It also ha- it has its rooting 
in reality. And that's something, by the way, Izzy, to return to your question about Warner Brothers, they were keen on, on telling stories like that, that had a certain bearing on it, as, as, as Harry Warner said to Congress, you know, real events that were unfolding in Europe. If I could ask you about the director, Michael Curtiz, for a minute. Um, Curtiz kind of seems like one of those very capable and versatile directors from the studio system who tends to get overlooked because he didn't have quite the calling card or a specific style in the way that a Lubitsch or a Minnelli did. Um, and I'm wondering if that's your perception as well of, of his work generally. And uh, if there are things that we can point to in Casablanca that feel very typically Curtiz. That's a really good question. And, and Curtiz, um, has 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 gained a bit of respect in recent years. You know, it was it was people who were under the spell of Andrew Saris and others who felt that he didn't belong in that, you know, he wasn't a pantheon, you know, he wasn't auteur. Um he made so many movies uh and 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 made them so quickly that that I think he has been neglected as somebody who was just he did sort of routine work in Hollywood, was part of the the, you know, the, the dream factories, the, 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 the assembly line production of the dream factories. Um, I, 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 it's hard for me to say whether or not, I don't really invest too much stock in this any, you know, whether he has a sort of a signature style, mm. but boy, was he efficient. And, and as for the speed, sometimes he even used that to his own advantage. He had, he was known for his very, very thick Hungarian accent and, and, uh, and uh, the, the, you know, there's there, there 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 was a moment in the production um, when they're worried. Who I can't remember who came to him. I can't remember this Hal B. Wallace. So this is one of the, the initial Hal Hal Wallace signature productions for mm-hmm. apropos of signature, but signature productions for, mm-hmm. for for Warner Brothers. And I can't remember whether it was Hal Wallace who came to him, or maybe it was even Ingrid Bergman. You know, twenty seven year old Swedish uh, rising star comes to see him, and I think it, I think it was Bergman. I know that she came and she needs, she wanted to know, am I in love with Rick or am I in love with, with, with Victor? I need to know this. I need to know this. And, 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 in that case, it was, it was, it was Kurt He said, he says, don't worry. He says, just play it in between, play it in between. And so he managed to, you know, with his thick accent <laughs> and with his always dodging, sort of bobbing and weaving like a good, you know, like a good prize fighter. Um, there was another instant though, and I can't remember what it was. There was a concern about something. He says, "Don't, he says, don't worry. I will make it so fast. No one will notice. No one will notice. I shoot it so fast." And so, for him, I think these, these, these. You know, he was known for 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 on on the on the on the uh, you know in the studio uh, set for 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 his efficiency for bringing in pictures at budget or even under budget, um, and and within the you know within the set shooting schedule and so 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 he was really quite extraordinary there and if you look at you know his filmography it is so ridiculously mm-hmm. extensive it is just it's amazing there were certain years where he you know where he directed three four pictures in a single year he goes back to the site you know if you follow it all the way back back to the, the silence in europe he made films in vienna made films in his native budapest um and so yeah he's not seen in the same light as a you know, a Ford Hitchcock, uh, uh, even, even, even Howard Hawks and, uh, and, 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 and a few other directors who are often championed as being those, you know, coveted representatives, uh, of Andrew Saris's auteur theory, but he was an extremely talented filmmaker who also had an ability to tell stories in a way that dazzled a mass audience. 
is is part of it that you know his two most well-known pictures, Casablanca and Mildred Pierce, are remembered today for their stars more than anything else. Do you think absolutely. that that adds to that? Murtada, that's an ap- absolutely that is a that is a that is an excellent point, and that is the darn truth. <laughs> they are remembered uh, in both in both instances remembered for 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 the extraordinary performances of their stars and not for and that too by the way is what you know that's why i kind of stammered a bit when 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 trying to think of a signature style the way that he made films it was not about leaving some sort of a signature stamp it was about efficiency it was about invisible editing in the kind of classical hollywood Mm -hmm. and 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 um I think you see that. Um, and look, his Mildred Pierce is extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Mildred Pierce, Murtada, because I think what Joan Crawford does in that film, in terms of the subtlety of a lot of that performance, is, I think, comparable to what um, Ingrid Bergman does here. And it's almost kind of difficult to describe, right? Like, it's so mesmerizing, her performance, but it's uh, difficult to put into words the way that she kind of glows. Um and I'm wondering what you make of her performance and why you think she was able to deliver such a nuanced and interesting yeah. performance in a in a situation where things were changing every single day. Yeah. Her performance is extraordinary. There's no question about it. I'm also a big fan of Zachary Scott, <laughs> who's, who's really quite wonderful, too. <laughs> a little shout out to Austin here. He's an Austin native son, Austin born actor Zachary Scott. But but I I have a question. I can't I can't I can't answer it myself at the moment. I'm not sure. Is it so Arthur Edison? He shot. He he shot uh, Casablanca. Shot shot the uh, Maltese Falcon. I can't remember whether he's the DP on Mildred Pierce or not. But you know, great great cinematographers were under contract at at, at Warner Brothers as 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 they were at other other studios as well. Great light light tech that you mentioned. This the lighting on 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 Joan Crawford in that in that film. The lighting on on Ingrid Bergman in Casablanca is just extraordinary. Yeah, gorgeous. Gorgeous. So luminescent, so uh, almost gauzy, and and yeah, just 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 beautiful. Um, and there are a number of scenes. You know, Casablanca is not really thought of necessarily as a as a noir, but there are a number of great noir flourishes. When Laszlo goes upstairs to join Rick in his office and have that conversation, there's some really really terrific shots there that are reminiscent of of, of the Maltese Falcon, among others. But you know, yeah. again again with the same DP. I can't really get over that first scene of Ingrid Bergman in Casablanca Mm -hmm. where she just walks into Rick's and suddenly it's as if we're in a completely different world. It's just the light. She has this light and glow around her. Almost a halo. Yeah. Yeah. Almost a halo. And she just immediately, you're like, I can't look anywhere else. I'm just going to look at this woman. And she's just so great and just takes your breath away. It's yeah, interesting no, no, it, though because it's also very kind of an unceremonious welcoming of her character into the film. Yeah, she just so walks in. It just sort of marches right into into that's Rick. That's right. Of, of, of all the gin joints, right there she is, right there yeah. in, in, in Rick's, and it's Sam who cues us in. Sam is sort of the you know, which was not uncommon for African American actors of the period. Something of an omniscient character, somebody who seems to see things that maybe others don't seem. No, it's, it's kind of an all-knowing response when she marches in. He knows the backstory. He knows mm-hmm. what will then only later, in that nine-minute flashback to Paris, will we discover as viewers. But Sam knows, and sort of Sam, you, you, just just by his his gestures, as he observes Ingrid Bergman 
uh, as Ilsa Lund marched into Rick's cafe, we too sort of, we follow his same, you know, we follow his lead on this. And we are, I mean, he's a bit anxious. We don't know why we should be anxious, but we recognize just the extraordinary presence, even if it's a bit alarming for him. We recognize the extraordinary presence of Ingrid Bergman as she comes into that. And in, in you're absolutely right, Izzy. I think it is not a terribly uh, ceremonious entrance. She, she just kind of prances right in with, 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 with Victor. Um, and we'll need to put the pieces together to understand why it is that, 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 uh, that Sam responds the way that he does. Um, and we'll need to, you know, as, as, well, as time goes by, we'll need to then uh, understand that the, the romance between her and, and, and Rick, which again is so powerful that it eclipses the rest of the film. And that's why I think again, to return to Mortada, to your point, I think that's why people forever will remember this film as one of the greatest romance. Mm-hmm. And the very fact that, that, that this is something that people have speculated about it. There have been all sorts of, you know, uh, uh, parodies and, and uh, you know, of the, of, of the, the, the lost, the lost reel that of the, of the, of the final scene. But the, the, the very fact that Ingrid Bergman stays. What's the lost, this, 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 what's the lost reel? There is no lost reel, but people okay. say the lost reel. There is no lost. There is no, there is no, I was like, did I miss something? Yes, yes. The lost, the, the lost grail, the lost reel. No, no, no. But the, the the very fact that she does not stay with Rick, the very fact that she boards that plane with 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 Laszlo, even though as you know, I they do the kind of uh, research that I've done on this one. Everyone, or the vast majority of people, are cheering for her to stay with you. Know, she got to stay with mm-hmm. Rick. She got It's that too. That sort of deferred fulfillment or that denied fulfillment that the, the you know that rick needs to subordinate his libidinal desires and his true love to fight the good fight and that too that's what just again lends even more heft to the propagandistic nature of the film as well and and and, and its ability to appeal to the office of war information that was then vetting films to make sure that they support the allied war effort and mm-hmm. it does that at the same time that it fulfills the strictures of the Hayes Code of the production code, in that she does not stay. She stays with Rick. Uh oh, we've got adultery that's basically been given it a blessing. And yeah. and and you can imagine what good old Joseph Ignatius Ignatius Breen and his henchmen would be doing. <laughs> not, not to not, not to mention Monsignor Little of the Catholic Legion of Decency. Um, but you know, ap- they'd be ap- absolutely apoplectic. And I don't know whether it would. You know, I don't even know whether it would have would have would have been possible. But so it's very again apropos of of uh, of, of Michael Cortese's efficiency. It's a very neat and efficient way of wrapping things up in the end, even if audiences or maybe I should say not even especially because audiences are just yearning for, for, for Ilsa to stay with Rick. So it makes it yeah. that much more heart wrenching and, 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 and perhaps memorable too. that, you know, this, look, the scene on that tarmac, it's been, again, it's another scene that's been parodied. You can think mm-hmm. of the, yeah. the SNL skit uh, with yeah. Kate McKinnon and, and uh, JD Simmons. That uh, whatever. So what Simmons did I get the, the actor's last name, right? Uh, the, the, the Simmons is definitely his last name. Hey, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of, of J.K. Rowling, J.K. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, yeah, but the yeah, SNL, the yeah, SNL, yeah. Pay, pay, uh, SNL skit, um, which is absolutely hilarious, absolutely hilarious. Um, and there've been others. There is no missing reel, but there's a Simpsons episode where they claim yeah. that they found the missing reel. <laughs> yeah, so there is no missing reel. Do you think it's because of the way they look at each other? Like, I was just struck. I I saw it again last night to talk to you, and I was just struck by the way Humphrey Bogart and Bergman just look at each other. And they make each other look better um, somehow. Um, 
So if you can talk a little bit about that and then did they get along like a little, if you know, a little bit of gossip, did they get along on set? <laughs> Not in the slightest, just the opposite. And I think it was straight, counterintuitive as it may be, I think it somehow contributed to, 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 to the effect. Uh, Bergman was, Bergman, Bogart was going through a really, really nasty divorce. Bergman felt that she never really got to know Rick during the Rick would retreat to his, you know, to his trailer. He was known for playing game after game of chess with a bunch of other actors on, 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 on set. Um, he, they just, you know, for all the screen chemistry that they clearly have, nothing off screen. And, and, uh, Ingrid Bergman would go to, to the, to, to the, to see, uh, the Maltese Falcon, Maltese Falcon was still in, 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 in general release at that period. She would go to watch him, uh, as Sam Spade in the Maltese Falcon as a means of trying to understand who this bogey was. Um, but I think the, to, to, to a certain extent, it, you know, Going back to, to the Curtis statement, don't worry, just play it in between. You know, the need to play it in between both the Laszlo and, and, and Bogey. It, it works. It works. And she's she is trying to kind of navigate her, you know, her 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 the 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 the, the, the twin. And this what makes the love triangle so 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 magnificent in the film. She's navigating these two loves. And, you know, to a large degree, you could say that Victor Laszlo is something of a father figure in a way. You know, they never, they never, there's no passionate kiss, a couple mm-hmm. pecks on the cheek. Um, she admires him clearly when he sings, you know, has everybody get up for that rousing rendition of La Marseillaise. She could not be more in awe. But with Rick, and this is, this is, uh, this is good acting, by the way, because if they don't have, you know, they don't know each other, they, 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 she's struggling to figure out who this bogey is. Those scenes in the, 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 the flashback to Paris, uh, even the you know the passionate embrace when she comes to visit Rick upstairs in his in his in his in his man lair, um, and you know pulls the gun on him for for the letters of transit can't shoot and before you know it they're locked once more in passionate embrace. You got that great cut from Arthur Addison's camera to the uh, to the, the, that uh, phallic watchtower and and Rick smoking the you know the standard issue postcoital cigarette there. Um, all that I think really captures the the sort of the excitement especially excitement for for audiences in 1942 i believe that it still 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 uh tracks in in 2023 it's just we're so used to seeing much more i think by not showing us mm-hmm. it makes it that much sexier if you like i mean i think that i think it was um again Absolutely. it was good, it was good old it was good old andrew Serres, i think who said about bergman that she represents sex appeal without the sex and i think this sort of demure <laughs> yeah nature of 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 or at least comparatively demure nature of of uh bergman really really worked well at one point apparently hedy, hedy lamar was tested for the part and had hedy lamar done it it would have been you know she's sort of a man killer and i think that would have been uh so a different. very very di- very different portrayal yeah, yeah 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 it's interesting it just kind of struck me while you were talking about that that ingrid bergman must have had some sort of innate talent with uncertainty and playing within that um if you think about you know her films with rosalini later where she wouldn't even have had a script and kind of had to figure out what her character's emotions were in any given moment um maybe she just was particularly good at that i don't know <laughs> well she went on record and and then she's quoted in a number of interviews uh to this effect that she she she, she didn't know how the film would end it's hard for me to believe that unless they were withholding but the, but the but the ending was it wasn't like the ending was being written as some people have claimed uh 
in the, in the final days of production. Not only does the ending match to a large degree the three-act stage play, the unproduced stage play, Everybody Comes to Rick's, but it was very, very clear that, 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 you know, that she was going to, for the reasons I spelled out moments ago, that she was going to board that flight with, with Laszlo. Mm. Um, but she claimed that she didn't know and that that too added to kind of a, a level of maybe um, tentativeness or, or this ambivalence, that ambivalence that's so important in the film. I mean, she, that's, that's something that she portrays um, very, very convincingly, I think. On the one hand, right, she is in in love with, or at least we're to we're given to believe that she's in love with this man, a man that she married when she was so young, and married mainly out of admiration. Then, of course, when he's taken for dead, has this super torrid romance, you know, this affair. It wasn't even really affair because Laszlo was presumed dead at that time, but has this this romance with Rick, and then suddenly she's meant to kind of process or digest both of those. And on screen, I think you can, you know, you can kind of see it happening in the way that she comports herself and the way that she interacts with both of these mm-hmm. figures. Um, yeah. Paul, Paul Henry is very dry. And what do you think of that performance? Um, like for me, it was very clear who she should go with. And I think most of, <laughs> most everyone who sees the movie wants her to go, like you, you just said, with Bogart. But is, was that... Talk about that performance. <laughs> uh, well, you're obviously on on Team Rick, and most people are on <laughs> on Team Rick. And it's funny. I I know I know Paul Henry's daughter, Monica Henry, and I like her very much. She's wonderful. <laughs> she's she's been great at preserving, as any you know loving daughter might do. She's mm-hmm. been great at preserving the 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 you know kind of the legacy, the rich legacy. I think of her father, and has been you know as as one might also expect on occasion, maybe a little defensive of his reputation. But many people, for 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 better or for worse, share your perception, Mortada, that 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 that, that Paul Henry, and this was an acting style that perhaps harkens back to his European stage training. Um, but he comes across to American audiences, especially comes across, you know, when, 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 when looked at vis-a-vis Humphrey Bogart as a sort of European stiff, you know, as a, a, a not, not the guy you necessarily, uh, uh, you know, want to, want to, want to go home with the way that, the way that Yvonne, <laughs> the way that Yvonne wants to go home with, uh, uh, Rick in the, in the, in, 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 in the first act, um, and you get that, you know, you get that dialogue that I, I, I'm sure is attributable to the the very witty Epstein twins about, you know, uh, wh- where were you last night? Oh, that's so long ago. I, I can't remember. Will I see you tonight? I never make plans that far ahead. You know, this sort of repartee. Um, Henry, it's, you know, he's the principled anti-Nazi. He is the leader of this important underground movement. And he has that sort of commitment, embodies that sort of commitment even if there's not a lot of, I don't want to say that it's absolutely humorless, but Rick is obviously witty. He may not be quite as witty as Claude Rains as, as Captain Renault, but Rick is, 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 is certainly witty. You don't have any laugh lines coming out of the mouth of Paul Henreid. And I think for audiences who maybe want that mix of seriousness and wit, um, and I do think there is a bit of a clash in terms of the sort of the American and, and, and European, maybe an acting style and also just in general, the kind of the presence on screen that Paul Henry embodied in comparison to, to Humphrey Bogart, whom audiences adored as a, you know, as a private eye, as a kind of tough, and which is very, very, by the way, coming back to Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers was famous for having actors of this, of the, you know, whether it's Cagney, whether it's Bogey, whether it's Edward G. Robinson. 
um, famous for having uh, uh, actors who kind of embody that swagger and that and that you know and the and the sort of scrappy. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that American audiences responded, especially at that time period, responded by comparison, Paul Henry was really quite prim and proper. Um, I mean, he's great in, in, in now Voyager. I think, I think yeah. he, he, he completely nails it as Victor and he's the romantic leader. Yeah, 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 of course. And that's, and he was, and he was a little bitter about that little, <laughs> I'm being very kind. He was a lot bitter that he was not going to be the romantic lead in this picture. And Bogey was very concerned whether or not he could pull it off. He'd never been a romantic lead before. He didn't know how to dance. He's wearing three-inch platform shoes to, 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 to stand next to the five-foot-nine Ingrid Bergman. Um, <laughs> they're dancing to Perfidia, and he's you know doing his best to, 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 to pull it off. Um, and he said late in life, he said, I didn't really need to do much. All I need is, you know, with that, that 27 year old Ingrid Bergman, where she looks at me with that amorous gaze in her eyes and poof, suddenly I'm a, I'm a romantic lead. And he was also then the, the, the highest paid actor in Hollywood after this. Wow, so, yeah. so, 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 so Laszlo wasn't Laszlo had Paul Henry was not exactly thrilled about that. Paul Henry also, there was a little bit of, uh, sparring over the scene of the Marseillaise. It's Rick who very significantly gives the okay to play the Marseillaise. Not, mm. not, not Lazlo. Lazlo marches up and, you know, he, he conducts the, the orchestra in, 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 the, in the, the Marseillaise, but it's Rick who gives the nod. And that apparently was another, another uh, bone of contention that, 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 uh, that, that Paul Henry had with, uh, with, with Bogey. And they also, they, they just didn't get along apparently. Nobody got along in this movie. Bogey had a few of his drinking buddies on there. So he had, he had, <laughs> Leonid Kinski plays Sasha the barman. Bogey apparently helped him to land that role. And they were, they were, they were tight. And Peter Laurie and Bogey were just hilarious together. And, and they, they loved to. Uh, and Cindy well, Greenstreet, well, right? Yeah, and Greenstreet as well. And Pete, but, 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 uh, but, but Peter Laurie in particular was such a prankster. And, and I think Bogey appreciated that, 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 that kind of fiendish and impish nature of Peter Laurie. Yeah. Uh, speaking uh, of Peter Lorre, um, yeah. I know you have also written a book on Weimar cinema, um, and I'm curious to know how these topics overlap for you. Are there things that you've learned about Weimar cinema that have affected how you interpret Casablanca or ways of looking at Weimar that are relevant to this film? Yeah, all paths lead back to Weimar cinema for me. And uh, it's very kind of you to say that I, I, I wrote a book, actually edited it. I edited a, a book back in 2009. I don't want to take too much credit. It just wouldn't be fair. They're great contributors in the, in the, in, in the volume. We've got Patrice Petro. We've got uh, Tom Gunning, a number of really, really extraordinary uh, uh, contributors. So I can't take too much credit. But I was, you know, I, I curated. I put it all together. Um, and that goes back to my graduate training at Berkeley back in the 90s. I worked with a, a, a film scholar by the name of Anton Case, Tony Case, who's a really leading scholar in, in, when it comes to Weimar cinema, German cinema more broadly. And so for me, that was the jumping off point. And I began my career up at Wesleyan. Not, not, I'm speaking to you in New York City, right? Is that yes. correct? So mm-hmm. a little, little north of you up in Middletown, Connecticut. And I began the Department of German Studies, but, but found myself drawn more and more to, to film and Janine Basinger, who ran this extraordinary program at the time. And it's really, it's her program. It's her signature, it's signature once more. <laughs> Somebody who believes in the auteurist theory and Janine. So this is her, she left her signature stamp on that program for sure. And I was 
increasingly kind of smitten and taken with what, what she was doing there and found myself teaching more and more. But Weimar cinema connects not only with, with, with Casablanca in a number of ways, and I do my best to enumerate those ways in the book, but also, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm working right now on, on uh, uh, Billy Wilder's Some Like It Hot for the same editor, same press. Um, and the through line of that book will really be Billy's training as a, as a training, if you can even use such a grandiose term, but his, his sort of cutting his teeth as a writer in Weimar, Germany, uh, in, in Berlin of the second half of the 20s and into the early 30s beginning first in, in, in Vienna, but making his way very quickly to, to, to Berlin following the, you know, the, the jazz, jazz orchestra and, 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 and its leader, Paul Whiteman. Um, but that, that story will, and there's a, another book that I curated or put together as editor called Billy Wilder on assignment. And that's those, those pieces that he wrote that now, thanks to the brilliant uh, uh, translations of, of, of Shelley Frisch are available for the first time to an English speaking audience. So much for my shameless plug. Um, they, they, they kind of, they, they, they lead us then to, 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 to some like a hot, and then I'm going to do a little interpretive biography of Wilder as well. And the, the Weimar period is just so formative for these figures. So many people, even in Casablanca, so many of the, including Peter Lorre began on stage, Lorre in the in the case of Lorre with, with Bertolt Brecht, but almost everybody passed through Max Reinhardt's first, the, 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 um, you know, Theater in the Josefstadt in Vienna. Uh, or uh, his, uh, you know, at the uh, Deutsches Theater in, in, in Berlin, they all were kind of under his spell as a, you know, the great theater impresario. And you can see the sort of afterlife of Weimar in so much of Hollywood uh, uh, film history, beginning in the, you know, 30s and 40s. Um, but even up, up to more recent, more recent films. And, and you see, you know, they cast long shadows, these, these early uh, silent pictures um, from the silent pictures and early talkies as well. I mean, I was just watching with my younger son, uh, Bob Fosse's cabaret and, and, and the sort of the, the, the ode to, to, to uh, Marlene Dietrich's performance in the blue angel is just uh, it's, it's, it's all over. Um, and, and you can see that. In fact, I even in the, in the book that you reference, you kindly reference Izzy, uh, Weimar Cinema, a uh, whatever the hell it's called, a companion. I can't remember what a a, uh, a companion to to the films of the era. I wish I could remember the subtitle. Um, but I begin in my editor's introduction. I begin with that very notion of a kind of the afterlife of Weimar, going back to these touchstones, including the Blue Angel, but then also how we remember them. And you know, there's a the, the biggest budget television series to date, Berlin Babylon is also just shot through with references, some of them very, very explicit to Blue Angel, to mention on Sontag, to people on Sunday, there's a great mm-hmm. scene where they quote from the, 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 the sort of the beach scene uh, at, at, in that film, People on Sunday from 1930, a film that, that was scripted by none other than the young Billy Wilder. Wow. Um, a lot of them worked on that, right? There were a, couple, Ed, a handful Ed, of directors. Edgar Ed, Ed, G. Omer gets the co-director credit, even though mm-hmm. Robert C. Mack would have liked to have denied him that credit. Um, and I and I wrote an entire book then on on, on Omer. So Omer, I did spend uh, oh boy more than a decade <laughs> on, on Omer. That was a long one, and then did a little a little uh, BFI film classics volume on Detour, which is probably everybody's favorite Omer. But I, I I'm kind of partial to to mention I'm Sontag. <laughs> I love people on Sunday. Uh, it's a great film. It's it's really one of the most beautiful silence. And and Omar, who began uh, 
during the Weimar period and then came to the States. He actually was returning from the States for Menschen am Sonntag, but he came to the States and ended up working with, with Murnau um, in the art department, first in the art department at Universal, but then, then uh, at Fox with Murnau's uh, directorial deb- American directorial debut, Sunrise, which is arguably the most magnificent silent film ever made. Uh, I, can't, I can't attribute too much of it to Omer, but I, I give him some credit. He and Rojus Glise, who was also involved in Mention Am Sontag at the beginning, but then took off when he realized these are just a bunch of hacks. Nobody knows what the hell they're doing. They were all, they were all 20, 20 somethings. I mean, they were like between the age of 22 and maybe in the second half of their 20s. And so, yeah. So we will turn it to Betty Davis and her famous quote What a dump. Usually this is something where we dump something or we dump on something or we say our least favorite thing about whatever topic we're discussing. So we all love Casablanca. I'm sure you love Casablanca. But if there is one element of the film that maybe you don't like as much that you would change or do something about it, which what would it be? I would change Ingrid's, Ingrid Bergman's line when she asks after Sam and she says, what is the name of the boy? playing the piano. It's so cringy and so laced with uh, racism that I think at the, you know, for her obviously was unconscious and, and for the studios, maybe it was also thought to be self-evident, but as it turns out, Dooley Wilson, one of the few American born players in the film, he was one of the oldest along with Sidney Greenstreet on this. It refer to him as boy. It's just, that's, yeah, I would do that. That's what I would do. Yeah, that's, that's my that's my is that my dump? Can I call that a dump or is that yeah, a, that's your dump? Am I throwing shade or is that a diss or yes, my dump? Okay, <laughs> no, it just edit. Good note. <laughs> All right, Izzy, what's your dump? Well, far be it for me to edit or change one of the best screenplays ever written, but I guess one of the things that I would change if I had to would be. A little more time with Peter Laurie. I think he's such a fun character in this film, and I wish that we got to see more of him before he meets his untimely death. And what's the character's name? He's the one with the papers at the beginning, right? Yeah, I think it's called, I think it's Ugarte. I don't know how to pronounce it exactly, um, but it's spelled U-J-R-T-E. Yeah, he is fun. Um, my dump, very quickly, as you said, one of the best screenplays ever, a movie we all love, and why that's why we're talking about it, is the voiceover at the beginning. I would dump that. There is no need to introduce the war, Casablanca, Morocco as these very alien things. Maybe you needed to do that in 1942. I don't know. Now we know Morocco. We know Casablanca. We know what happened. So it kind of feels like just not extraneous because it's at the beginning, but it just feels like there could have been a different maybe better entry it's very 1940s for sure for sure yes so that's our dumps uh it has been a pleasure talking to you this was such a wonderful conversation thank you so much for joining us tonight yeah thank you as well it's been a real pleasure being on the uh show do i say on the podcast on i don't even know what terminology one uses anymore but thank you for having me uh so where can people find you if they would like to follow your work Oh, that is a very good question. So the Casablanca book, since we were talking about it all day, <laughs> so it feels to me, I've enjoyed every minute of it, uh, is available in paperback from Norton. So you can you can get a hold of that. 
I'm also, I do my best to update the website, but it's, I'm a little slow on that. And sometimes I find a very generous graduate student with a small fee, of course, attached, who will help me to give a little facelift. It's in need of a facelift, but it's just Noah, Noah, I, www, I think we still say that, World Wide Web. It's on the, it's on the interweb. Um, and then just NoahEisenberg.com. And so you, you'll find, you know, other other pieces as well. There are articles and then, you, and then links to the books and links to the different booksellers, independent booksellers and others. So thank you so much. Thank you again, Noah Eisenberg, for joining us for this episode. Again, you can pick up his book, We'll Always Have Casablanca, The Life, Legend, and Aftermath of Hollywood's Most Beloved Movie, uh, wherever you buy your books, but preferably not Amazon. Um, and we'll leave links for that and all of his social media below in the description of the episode. You can find both of us at I Am Picture Show on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and for myself personally, you can find me at BK Rewind and BK underscore Rewind on Instagram. And you can find me at ME underscore says on Twitter and at Mortada underscore E on Instagram. And until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>